Hey, it's Guy here. So today's show is all about why some people believe in a power higher than themselves and others don't. This episode first aired in November of 2013, but this time around, we've included a brand new interview with Greg Tonkinson. He's an ordained minister whose faith was tested in a way few of us could ever imagine. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that. Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So a lot of us have some sort of plan we're following, a vision, a path we set out for our lives. But for some people, it's more than that. It's the path that God has laid out. Exactly. Faith is trust. I just assumed that this was God's path for me. This is Greg Tonkinson, and his path became clear to him in 1986 when he was a student at Arizona State University, and he decided to dedicate his life to his faith. When I did that, I just, uh, no angels, no trumpets, but I knew that um, God had gotten a hold of my life. (laughs) So I went to uh, Phoenix Seminary and began taking classes and I guess really fell in love with the academic side, the thinking side of the Christian faith. And a few years later, when Greg met his wife, Leanne, He thought that was part of the plan, too. Yeah, we met at church. I was teaching our college ministry, and in walked this beautiful woman, and I just thought, boy, I'd I'd love to get to know her. And so we decided to go out on a date, dated for two years, and we got married in 1996. And Greg and Leanne built a life for themselves based on this plan. She started working at Phoenix Children's Hospital in 97, uh, and then I planted a church in 1998. And mm-hmm. so so our journey was definitely embedded in, again, a, a solid faith. We both knew we wanted to pursue a Christian marriage, raise kids in the Christian faith. And for the next decade, that's exactly what they did. We had three kids. We lived on a cul-de-sac, two dogs, a minivan. I, I felt like we were living the Christian life, and so not to paint the suburban typical picture, but that's honestly where we were at. We were comfortably enjoying life Hmm. up until 2010. Up until March 6th, 2010. I received that knock on the door, and the only thing I remember is looking back into our living room, seeing my three children, and opening the door, seeing a police officer, and then two people flanking him in black windbreakers. That was a police chaplain and a childcare worker. And the rest did play out like a movie. And words um, have never had weight up until that moment. When he said, at about 7.30, your wife was killed in a car accident. Those 
Those words um, brought me to my knees, and and I remember my kids rushing toward me, and I I could only muster the words that mommy had an accident tonight, and she's in heaven, and we're not going to see her again this side of heaven, but she's okay. And we have a lot to live for, but we need to do that as best we can together. And then one day we'll see mommy again. And that was all about all I could get out. And within 20 or 30 minutes, my house was filled with relatives people who loved me and loved Leanne and loved our kids, and we were all weeping and grieving together. Greg Tonkinson continues his story from the TED stage. So on March 6, 2010, myself along with 10-year-old Caden, 6-year-old Bailey, and 4-year-old Malia began our journey of life without our wife and mother. But what has made this trek so especially demanding for me is that I'm a man of faith. Not casual faith, but a faith that has defined me for over 30 years. So what do you do when your faith has been traumatized by such a traumatic event? What do you do when you've told people time and time again to trust and follow and obey? What do you do when you earnestly begin doubting the very subject that you've been promoting your entire adult life? So the why questions just, you know, flooded my inbox, if you will. Why did this happen? Why did you take her from me? Why um, can't I just go on living the life I was? I thought everything was good between God and I. I, I thought that that... I just assumed that this was God's path for me. Leanne's death shook Greg's faith. It threw what he thought was his path, his ability to trust, into question. Things like this happen to people every day around the world, and many of them still choose to believe. But how? How can billions of us believe in something we don't physically see? And where does doubt fit into this belief? Well, today on the show, we're going to explore stories of people grappling with faith and belief. And for Greg, in the face of doubt, in the darkest moment of his life, he had to rethink his faith. He had to rethink how he saw God's plan for him. Greg, did you, I mean, you knew or you believed that God had a plan for you. Yes. And then the plan that you thought he had for you is upended. Did you begin to doubt the wisdom of that plan or even the plan itself? Not only did I doubt it, I wanted to end the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, if, I, if I could be honest, um, I begged God to take me home. I was not suicidal, but there were very vivid moments being overwhelmed with the tragedy and then the responsibility um, of raising three children. And so, yes, I, I, I began, and it, it never happened before March 6th, I began to talk with God about 
my plan because my plan had been so radically altered i really did believe that i could go to him now and start negotiating um, what the rest of the plan was going to look like so my my journal is full of entries that have me lashing out at god have me being angry with him with the situation with the young man that killed my wife yeah okay, God, this happened, I can't reverse history, so you need to now make sense of this. A unilateral prayer I had with God five days after the accident, as was recorded in my journal. Dear God, the pain that's beginning to set in right now is so intense. I can't see your goodness. I know you're near, but I don't want that. I want my wife back. I wanted us to grow old and to die and to experience heaven together. So what happened to that plan? Why was that plan so wrong? And why do you find it so appalling for me to want to watch my wife love on our kids for a few more years? And now that you've taken her, God, when's it my turn? And how awful would it be if you decided to take me home and leave our kids without a mother or a father? You couldn't have changed your plan by one minute? One minute and that stoplight wouldn't have been red. One minute. So no, I can't see your goodness. All I can see is you allowing my wife to be killed. All I can see is you allowing my kids to live without a mother. So how wrong is that, God? Somewhere along the journey, I arrived at a question that I needed an answer to. Is this going to be a long-term experience for me? Will my journey of faith now forever be embedded with this overtone of doubt? Are faith and doubt inextricably linked? Some would say yes. Faith has no easy answers. That it's difficult and stubborn, that it involves this ongoing struggle, that faith and doubt will forever be joined, and that those who don't doubt really aren't experiencing faith. You know, I've And I'm sure you've experienced this. You talk to some people about faith and the way they talk about faith. I'm almost sort of jealous of it because it seems easy that it's a, it's just a faith is simple. Yeah. It sounds like when you talk about faith now, that it's hard. It's not actually easy. There is struggle in finding faith. I've never found faith to be easy. And so this accident accentuated that. It didn't draw me away from God, it drew me into God, but I've never understood when people have claimed that faith is easy. Faith is difficult, it's, it's hard to define, and it's even harder to live. And so my understanding, my belief, my trust in God um, relies heavily on the intellectual side of trying to understand who God is. With that said, faith includes trust, and it's trust in an object that I can't see. I can give evidence by way of God's creation, but I've never been able to prove God empirically. And I think that causes me to continue to get up every day deciding to trust in Him. Could I wake up one day and decide that all of what I've been doing for the past 40 years has uh, 
been a farce. I don't want to discount that that could ever happen. But if I can get on the other end of a tragedy as big as losing my wife and still believe that I'm quite confident that that isn't going to be the case. That said, I don't know if I would have the kind of faith I have if it was easy. Yeah. I always want to be asking good questions that allow myself and those around me to to talk to God in a way that I don't believe he's threatened by. God, make sense of this. I don't understand this. I need this to be more clear. And for me, God has time and time again answered those prayers. That's Greg Tonkinson. He's an educator at Valley Christian High School and Grand Canyon University. In 2013, Greg was remarried. He and his wife, Jennifer, are now raising a blended family, complete with five children. You can see Greg's full talk at ted.npr.org. On the show today, ideas about belief and doubt. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Capital One. With the Capital One Saver Card, you can earn 4% cash back on dining and entertainment. That means 4% on checking out that new French restaurant and 4% on bowling with your friends. You'll also earn 2% cash back at grocery stores and 1% on all other purchases. Now, when you go out, you cash in. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Terms apply. Hey, uh, you know what next year is, right? 2020, election year. The news is only going to get crazier. So join me, Sam Sanders, for a wrap-up of the week's news and culture that will not make you want to pull your hair out. Download and listen every weekend to It's Been a Minute from NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And our show today, believers and doubters. Why some people believe, why some don't. And then there are those who are somewhere in between, like Leslie Hazelton. What do you what do you believe? What do you believe in? I don't believe in. To believe in doesn't really make too much sense to me. Leslie Hazelton writes about the people and the prophets who shape the things many people believe. I am a very, very firm agnostic, by which I mean that I'm not faithless but I put my faith in inquiry. And I know this sounds strange, but I do have a very deep sense of mystery, what might be called religious mystery. And it was that sense of mystery, of religious mystery, that prompted Leslie, who, by the way, is an agnostic Jew, that prompted her to spend five years of her life researching and writing a biography about the prophet Muhammad. And it all started with one question, one question that kept nagging her. Here she is on the TED stage. I found myself waking each morning in misty Seattle to what I knew was an impossible question. What actually happened one desert night, half the world and almost half of history away? What happened, that is, on the night in the year 610, 
when Muhammad received the first revelation of the Quran on a mountain just outside Mecca. This is the core mystical moment of Islam. And as such, of course, it defies empirical analysis. Which might be why when I looked at the earliest accounts we have of that night, what struck me even more than what happened was what did not happen. Muhammad did not come floating off the mountain as though walking on air. He did not run down shouting, Hallelujah and bless the Lord. There were no choirs of angels, no music of the spheres, no elation, no ecstasy, no golden aura surrounding him. No sense of an absolute foreordained role as the messenger of God. Quite the contrary. In his own reported words, he was convinced at first that what had happened couldn't have been real. So tell me, what did happen? He was terrified. He was in fear for his life. He thought this angelic apparition, this voice was going to smother him, was going to just, just literally squeeze the life out of his chest. He thought he was going to die. And when he didn't, his first reaction was that he had to have been mad. He had to have been insane. This had to have been a delusion. And he was terrified lest other people say this of him. In fact, he was so sure that he could only be Majnun, possessed by a jinn, that when he found himself still alive, his first impulse was to finish the job himself, to leap off the highest cliff and escape the terror of what he'd experienced by putting an end to all experience. So the man who fled down the mountain that night trembled not with joy, but with a stark, primordial fear. He was overwhelmed not with conviction, but by doubt. He, he, was a, he was a doubter. I think the best of us are. The worst of us are those who never doubt, who are so sure that we possess the absolute truth, that we become less human. What struck me about Muhammad, the deeper I went into his life, was how extraordinarily human he was and his ability to acknowledge his own fallibility. We see it there, by the way, in the very last words of Jesus. Father, why have you forsaken me? Wonderful, uh, exquisite, agonizing moment of doubt. Muhammad is not the Pope uh, of Islam. He's the prophet. And prophets, too, can doubt. This is what makes him human. Too human for some like conservative Muslim theologians who maintain that the account of his wanting to kill himself shouldn't even be mentioned, despite the fact that it's in the earliest Islamic biographies. They insist that he never doubted for even a single moment, let alone despair. Demanding perfection, they refuse to tolerate human imperfection. Yet what exactly is imperfect about doubt? Abolish all doubt, and what's left is not faith, but absolute, heartless 
conviction. So doubt is essential. I think it's part of us that we need to cherish. We have this idea that doubt is somehow imperfect, that there's something wrong with doubt. It's this desire for certainty that I see is so dangerous and the desire for perfectibility. Let's just let go of perfection. Let's just accept that we're human, we're imperfect. That's what makes us interesting. That's what makes the world interesting. If we were all perfect and we were all alike, we would die of boredom. Where does, like, where does faith end and conviction begin? I think they're in two separate spheres. The people I know of deepest faith are not convinced. They have faith despite their doubts. In fact, because of their doubts. It's a dance, and they're very, very aware of this, and it goes beyond belief in. They know that this is not rational, and yet they commit themselves. And it's that act of commitment, that existential act of commitment, that I so admire. And that very, very deep sense that religion is, in a sense, not even about God. It's about humans. It's about making ourselves better people. Leslie Hazelton, she's the author of The First Muslim, the story of Muhammad. You can see her entire talk at ted.npr.org. Hello. 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 Oh, you can. Oh, there you are. Oh, God. Oh, God. This is the comedian Julia Sweeney. What is it that you believe in? Well, I think, first of all, the word believe, it has a lot of different connotations. I think when people talk about religion, they take belief to be the same as faith. So I would like to define the word believe in the way you're asking me the question, as in, what do I have confidence in? Yeah, sure. Okay, fine. Okay. I have confidence in the scientific method. I have confidence in the biological history of our species being interconnected and tribal and helping each other and connected through love and family and relations. Is this answering your question? This is a complicated idea for Julia Sweeney. She's been wrestling with what it means to believe for most of her life. And it's a story that she told on the TED stage. On September 10th, the morning of my seventh birthday, I came downstairs to the kitchen where my mother was washing the dishes and my father was reading the paper or something. And I sort of presented myself to them in the doorway. And they said, hey, happy birthday. And I said, I'm seven. And my father smiled and said, well, you know what that means, don't you? And I said, yeah, that I'm going to have a party and a cake and get a lot of presents? And my dad said, well, yes. But more importantly, being seven means that you've reached the age of reason. And you're now capable of committing any and all sins against God and man. (laughs) So I said, yeah, yeah, age of reason. What does that mean again? And my dad said, well, we believe in the Catholic Church that God knows that little kids don't know the difference between right and wrong. But when you're seven, you're old enough to know better. So you've grown up and reached the age of reason. And now God will start keeping notes on you and begin your permanent record. And I said, oh, 
wait a minute. You mean all that time up till today? All that time I was so good, God didn't notice it? And my mom said, well, I noticed it. And I thought, how could I not have known this before? How could it not have sunk in when they've been telling me all that being good and no real credit for it? And worst of all, how could I not have realized this very important information until the very day that it was basically useless to me? So I said, well, mom and dad, what about Santa Claus? I mean, Santa Claus knows if you're naughty or nice, right? And my dad said, yeah, but honey, I think that's technically just between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And my mother said, oh, Bob, stop it. Let's just tell her. I mean, she's seven. Julie, there is no Santa Claus. <laughs> now, I didn't know it at the time, but I really wasn't turning seven on September 10th. For my 13th birthday, I planned a slumber party with all of my girlfriends. But a couple of weeks beforehand, my mother took me aside and said, I need to speak to you privately. September 10th is not your birthday, it's October 10th. And I said, what? And she said, listen, the cutoff date to start kindergarten was September 15th. So I told them that your birthday was September 10th, and then I wasn't sure that you weren't just going to go blab it all over the place, so I started to tell you your birthday was September 10th. But Julie, you were so ready to start school, honey. You were so ready. I thought about it. When I was four, I was already the oldest of four children, and my mother even had another child to come. So what I think she understandably really meant was that she was so ready. She was so ready. Then she said, don't worry, Julie. Every year on October 10th, when it was your birthday, but you didn't realize it, I made sure that you ate a piece of cake that day. It wasn't until years later, looking back on this whole age of reason, change of birthday thing, that it dawned on me. I wasn't turning seven when I thought I turned seven. I had a whole other month to do anything I wanted to before God started keeping tabs on me. Oh, life can be so cruel. <laughs> this is such a crazy story. <laughs> Did any of this, like, shape the way you thought about any of your beliefs? Well, I had always had a sort of affectionate relationship with the Catholic Church, which I was raised in a Catholic culture, and I liked it. I loved the Catholic school, and I loved the nuns. And um, and then when it came to the belief part of it, I, I always was a little bit skeptical, but I didn't look into it very deeply. Until she did, one afternoon, when Julia heard a knock at the door, and there were two Mormon missionaries who were standing there. And they said they had a message for me from God. I said, a message for me? From God? And they said, yes. Now, I was raised in the Pacific Northwest around a lot of Church of Latter-day Saints people, and, you know, I've worked with them and even dated them, but I never really knew the doctrine or what they said to people when they were out on a mission, and I guess it was sort of curious, so I said, well, please, come in. And they looked really happy because I don't think this happens to them all that often. <laughs> So I sat them down and I got them glasses of water. And after our niceties, they said, do you believe that God loves you with all his heart? And I thought, well, of course I believe in God. But, you know, I don't like that word heart because it anthropomorphizes God. And I don't like the word his either because that sexualizes God. But I didn't want to argue semantics with these boys. So after a very long, uncomfortable pause, I said, yes, yes, I do. I feel very loved. And they looked at each other and smiled like, 
that was the right answer. <laughs> and then they said, do you believe that we're all brothers and sisters on this planet? And I said, yes, I do. Yes, I do. And I was so relieved that it was a question I could answer so quickly. <laughs> but the question they asked me when I first arrived really stuck in my head. Did I believe that God loved me with all his heart? Because I wasn't exactly sure how I felt about that question. Now, if they had asked me, do you, do you feel that God loves you with all his heart? Well, that would have been much different. I think I would have instantly answered, yes, yes, I feel it all the time. I, I feel God's love when I'm hurt and confused, and I feel consoled and cared for. I take shelter in God's love when I don't understand why tragedy hits, and, and I feel God's love when I look with gratitude at all the beauty I see. But since they asked me that question with the word believe in it, somehow it was all different because I wasn't exactly sure if I believed what I so clearly felt. Okay, so Julia, this is how your talk ends, and I have so many more questions for you. <laughs> all right, so at this point, I, I guess I should reveal that not long after those Mormon missionaries came to visit you, you actually became an atheist. Like, how did that happen? Do you, do you remember? Well, it was... Over a two-year period, but there was a moment. It was a epiphany of sorts. There's a religious word for you. <laughs> um, I had been doing a lot of reading and research about religion, and I was walking through the backyard, and it suddenly hit me that I didn't believe anymore. Like, I really didn't believe in God. There was a sign. You got a sign that, that there was no God. No, it was no. not a sign. It wasn't a sign. It was a developing understanding. Yeah, it's it's weird, though. Like, we're kind of socialized to talk about these things in, in religious terms because, I mean, this is your moment of atheism, and, and it was like an epiphany. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is true. I don't want to overplay it. I mean, I, I didn't, like, fall down to the ground or anything or change my name from Saul to Paul or anything like that. Is there, like, a part of you, like even a very small part of you, I don't know, that kind of like holds out hope, that almost like doubts your doubt? No, I don't even think about it really frankly anymore. I, I'm just, I'm living my life as a person who accepts the natural world, you know, and just the whole idea that there's a God who cares whether people believe in him or not. Like, why would God care if people believed in him or not? Like, that was one of the many things that I found so shocking reading the Bible is, first of all, how insecure God is. I mean, God is so insecure. He needs everyone to say, you're the number one, and you're the number one over all the other gods, and and you're the top God. And like, it's the most insecure character. So in your, in your talk, you mentioned this idea of like feeling God's love. I mean, is that something that you, you ever still feel? Um, actually, I think I feel all those things even more deeply, but I just don't thank a deity in the sky who I think has provided all those things. Do you see what I mean? So, like, I don't say, thank you, God, for providing this lovely day. I just think, wow, this is a really beautiful day. It's not thanking an idea of a God for providing it. It's feeling lucky that I get to experience it because of just the serendipitous nature of nature itself and that I happen to be standing here and I happen to be looking at it. Why, why is the word belief so hard for you? 
Well, I don't think it's just me. I think that word is conflated with a bunch of things. And so then when you say you don't believe in God anymore, sometimes people say, oh, you're not a believer in anything, like saying you're denying there's reality. And that isn't what I feel. I have confidence in a lot of things and a lot of different sources of knowledge that we've accumulated and personal experience and all kinds of stuff like that. So I try to be careful using the word belief. I actually try to avoid using the word. Julia Sweeney's TED Talk is based on her stage monologue called Letting Go of God. And you can see her talk at ted.npr.org. Stay with us. More believers and doubters in a moment. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, where opportunity takes root. More information is available at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. While you were sleeping, a whole lot of news was happening around the world. Up first is the NPR News podcast that gets you caught up on the big news in a small amount of time. Spend about 10 minutes with Up First, weekday mornings from NPR News. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And today's show, Believers and Doubters. Who believes, who doesn't, and why? What do you believe in? I believe that life is very short. Our responsibility is to be good to ourselves and those around us. I believe in civilization, wisdom, and very susceptible to beauty. This is the writer Alain de Botton. And if you noticed, he did not mention anything about God because he doesn't believe in God. But Melan wants just a little bit more out of atheism. Here's how he starts his TED Talk. One of the most common ways of dividing the world is into those who believe and those who don't, into the religious and the atheists. And for the last decade or so, it's been quite clear what being an atheist means. There have been some very vocal atheists who've pointed out not just that religion is wrong, but that it's ridiculous. They've argued that believing in God is akin to believing in fairies. Now, I think it's too easy to dismiss the whole of religion that way. What I'd like to inaugurate today is a new way of being an atheist. If you like, a new version of atheism we could call Atheism (laughs) 2.0. Now, what is Atheism 2.0? Well, it starts from a very basic premise. Of course, there's no God. Of course there are no deities or supernatural uh, spirits or angels, etc. Now let's move on. I'm interested in a kind of constituency that thinks something along these lines. I can't believe in the doctrines. I don't think these doctrines are right, but, very important but, I love Christmas carols. Uh, I really like uh, the art of Mantegna. I really like looking at old churches. I really like turning the pages of the Old Testament. Whatever it may be, you know the kind of thing I'm talking about. People who are attracted to the ritualistic side, the moralistic, communal side of religion, but can't bear the doctrine. Now, I think there is an alternative. I think there are ways, and I'm being both very respectful and completely impious of stealing from religions. If you don't believe in a religion, there's nothing wrong with picking and mixing. 
with taking out the best sides of religion. Um, take a cathedral. Why are cathedrals impressive? Okay, is it God? No, it's architecture. Okay, yes, it was inspired by God, but ultimately, it's an architectural phenomenon where, if you are very small in a vast space, that is both slightly frightening and also very uplifting. We all get this beneath the evening sky. You know, you go out on a clear summer's night under the evening sky, and suddenly you are paralleled with something so vast. That your own smallness is seen not as a crushing and humiliating thing, but as a redemptive thing. That is, I think, the core of the religious sense. The core of the religious sense is feeling small within the vastness. It is something that predates belief, goes beyond belief. You can have it as a non-believer, and I have it all the time. It's just that religions have been onto this feeling, and they've made the most of it. And that is what Alan wants atheists to do—to figure out how to address some of our deepest and most basic needs, the way religion has done it for centuries. In the early 19th century, church attendance in Western Europe started sliding down very sharply, and people panicked. They asked themselves the following question: They said, "Where are people going to find morality? Where are they going to find guidance? And where are they going to find sources of consolation?" And influential voices came up with one answer: It's to culture that we should look for guidance, for consolation, for morality. Let's look to the plays of Shakespeare, the dialogues of Plato, the novels of Jane Austen. In there, we'll find a lot of the truths that we might previously have found in the Gospel of Saint John. Now, I think that's a very beautiful idea and a very true idea. It's also an idea that we have forgotten. Let's say you went to Harvard or Oxford or Cambridge, and you said, "You know, I've come here because I'm in search of morality, guidance, and consolation. I want to know how to live." They would show you the way to the insane asylum. This is simply not what our grandest and best institutes of higher learning are in the business of. Why? They don't think we need it. They don't think we are in urgent need of assistance. They see us as adults, rational adults. We don't need help. Now, religions start from a very different place, indeed. All major religions, at various points, call us children. They believe that we are in severe need of assistance. We're only just holding it together. And perhaps this is just me, maybe you. But anyway, we're only just holding it together, and we need help. Of course, we need help, and so we need guidance and we need didactic learning. We tend to believe in the modern secular world that if you tell someone something once, they'll remember it. Sit them in a classroom, tell them about Plato at the age of 20, send them out into a career in management consultancy for 40 years, and that lesson will stick with them. Religions go nonsense. You need to keep repeating the lesson 10 times a day. So get on your knees and repeat it 10 or 20 or 15 times a day. Otherwise, our minds are like sieves. Do, do you ever find yourself, I don't know, feeling like? Like you're missing out. Like, like, do you ever just want to go to a church or synagogue and I don't know, just like feel it? Um, look, I think, like many secular people, I'm, I, I look on with a certain kind of mixture of envy and dissatisfaction and interest at the religious festivals of my believing friends, and I tell myself, hmm. You know, Yom Kippur is, a, you know, that's very interesting. You look back over sins you might have committed, you ask for forgiveness, you renew social ties, and then you know, I find myself in a Yom Kippur service, and I think,、mm, there's something I like here, but I'm not sure. Look, I think that the modern secular world is very new. It's only really been in the last, say, hundred years, the blink of an eyelid, that 
a substantial number of people in the developed world have been non-believers. And I think we are still trying to work out what a good non-believing life might look like. We've got a lot to invent still. I can't help but think that it's almost like you're calling for like a new kind of religion. I am. I am calling for a new religion. But what does that mean? Okay, so um, <laughs> if you do away with religion, that's not the end of the story. If you simply announce, okay, I don't believe in God, the creation story is a myth, etc. Fine. Good for you. Fine. What happens now? Where are you going to go with all those needs which religion formally attended to? Now, some people take a very bluff approach at that point, and they go, look, I don't mind. I've got some poetry to read in the evening. I go to the local library if I want to meet anyone. And uh, if I need some transcendental feelings, well, you know, I'll book myself on a trip to the Grand Canyon. Thanks very much. End of story. I don't think that is the end of the story. I think there is an enormous amount that needs to be invented. And there's an opportunity for all of us thinking secular people to respect religions for what they achieved and to look forward to a future where, you know, we can get creative. Is there any part of you, like even a teeny tiny part of you, that sometimes doubts your doubts? Genuinely, no, but there is quite a big part of me that will love religion to be true. And it's particularly at moments of crisis where I think, my goodness, I would love to believe that this could be made better or that there was something beyond or that I could control the fate of a loved one. Life is going to pit all of us in extremely dramatic situations that certainly explain to me psychologically why God was not some luxury or piece of myth. I experience God as a psychological necessity for the intolerable anxiety and fear of being human. I can't believe in God, but boy, oh boy, do I know why people do believe. That's Alain de Baton. He's the author of Religion for Atheists, and his latest book is called Art as Therapy. Check out both of his talks at TED.com. So what if everyone we've heard from on the show today is right? Like, what if there is only your truth, which is what Devdut Patanayak believes? My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. And six billion people on this planet have six billion truths. And you believe your truth is the truth. I believe my truth is the truth. And that's why we argue. Devdut writes about Hinduism, particularly about Hindu mythology, but he's also really interested in universal myths and truths and why people argue about them. Here's how he starts his TED Talk. The world is objective, logical, universal, scientific. My world is subjective. It's personal. It's perceptions, thoughts, feelings, dreams. It is the belief system that we carry. It's the myth that we live in. The world tells us how the sun rises, how we are born. My world tells us why the sun rises. Why were we born? So I want to ask you about belief. I mean, okay. like, what do you think it is about belief or faith that, that people seem to need? Well, you see, if you look at nature, there is the animal, which is the predator, which is constantly looking for food, and it's restless and frightened. So that's hunger. And then there are animals which are prey, which are constantly seeking protection and security, because otherwise the predator will eat them. So that's fear. And then the human beings come along, and we imagine a world without hunger, and we imagine a world without fear. 
And we also imagine the opposite, a world with absolute terrible hunger and absolute terrible fear. The former, the world without hunger and fear, we call heaven. And the world full of infinite hunger and fear, we call hell. And we are wondering, how do we avoid hell and go towards heaven? And we are looking for answers everywhere. And someone comes along and tells us something and we say, hey, that'll take me to heaven. And that's faith. This understanding of our ancestors is transmitted generation from generation in the form of stories, symbols and rituals, which are always indifferent to rationality. And so when you study it, you realize that different people of the world have a different understanding of the world. There is my world and there is your world. And my world is always better than your world. Because my world, you see, is rational. And yours is superstition. Yours is faith. Yours is illogical. This is the root of the clash of civilizations. I was really interested in the story you told in your talk about Alexander the Great and the completely different perspectives on it, like from the Hindu perspective and, and from the Greek perspective. Yes. The story goes that Alexander met a person in India called the gymnosophist, which is basically means a naked wise man. And he asked the gymnosophist, who was doing, sitting on a rock, doing nothing, just staring at the sky. And Alexander asked him, so what are you doing? What are you doing? And the gymnosophist answered, I'm experiencing nothingness. Then the gymnosophist asked, what are you doing? And Alexander said, I am conquering the world. And they both laughed. Each one thought the other was a fool. Gymnosophist said, why is he conquering the world? It's pointless. And Alexander thought, why is he sitting around doing nothing? What a waste of a life. And the two people looked at the same situation very differently because each of them believed in different things. Alexander believed you live only once. All his life as a child, he read stories of heroes who do something spectacular. And because they do something spectacular, they land up in a place called Elysium, heaven of heroes. And he wanted to be one of them. So he worked all his life trying to be a great man. But that's not the story the gymnosophist heard. He heard a very different story. You see, the Indians also had a river which separates the land of the living from the land of the dead. But you don't cross it once. You go to and fro endlessly. Because you see, nothing lasts forever in India, not even death. The same life is lived infinite times till you get the point of it all. Groundhog's Day. Two different mythologies, two different ways of looking at the world. One believes this is the one and only life. The other believes this is one of many lives. People must ask you all the time, who's right? Yes, they do. And I say, you decide. It's your decision. You are the judge. I guess I'd rather live, you know, multiple lives than just one. Right? Less pressure in some ways. There is less pressure, but you see, it also makes you uh, inefficient, it makes you lackadaisical, lazy. So if you want to save the world, you need one life. Do, do you think more people would identify with the, the gymnosophist or with Alexander? 
the simple answer is when things are going right for you, think of yourself as Alexander. You've achieved success. If things are not going so well, your relationships are breaking down and, you know, life just sucks. Then you say, hey, I'm the gymnosophist. This shall not last forever. A new life will come along and everything will change. Hmm. And you're happy. And if you look at cultures around the world, all you have to do is understand their mythology and you will see how they behave and how they do business. If you live only once in one life cultures around the world, you will see an obsession with binary logic, absolute truth, standardization, absoluteness, linear patterns in design. But if you look at cultures which are cyclical and based on infinite lives, you will see a comfort with fuzzy logic, with contextual thinking, with everything is relative, sort of, mostly. Just look at your Indian people around here. You'll see them smile. They know what it is. <laughs> and then look at people who have done business in India. You'll see the exasperation on their faces. There'll always be people who believe in one life and there'll always be people who believe in many lives. What's your truth? That everybody has a right to their truth. What about yours? It is that there, nothing in this world is permanent, nothing is perfect, everything is transforming all the time. Do you, you believe this? With, yes, I do. With all of your heart and soul? Well, every time I look into the mirror, I see I'm growing older, so there it is. My hairs are growing grey, my skin is wrinkling, the trees are falling, people are changing all the time. That never changes. And so the next time you meet someone, a stranger, one request. Understand that you live in the subjective truth. And so does he. Understand it. And when you understand it, you will discover something spectacular. You will discover that within infinite myths lies the eternal truth. Who sees it all? Varuna has but a thousand eyes. Indra a hundred. You and I, only two. Thank you. Namaskar. Devdev Patanayak has written more than a dozen books on Hindu mythology. You can see his entire TED Talk at TED.com. Listening to our show on believers and doubters this week. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Sanaz Meshkanpur, and Neva Grant, with help from Daniel Shukin, Portia Robertson Migas, and Eric Newsom. Our partners at TED include Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. <laughs>